0: The opportunity to lift our voices together in song is a joyous and monumentally fun occasion in that we have the privilege of doing the very thing commanded of us in the New Testament. And in fact, even the Psalms of the Old Testament, the 150 chapters of that book, really is a song book in as much as it is the song book of the ancient Hebrews. Even until we recognize and appreciate. That Psalm 89 verse 7 still reminds us that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. How joyous it is to be able to come together this evening and to continue our study in the book of Second Samuel in the Old Testament. Our youngsters have been diligently involved in a study of that book now for several weeks and we continue to study with them by way of our Sunday evening lessons as well as some puzzles be they find a words and cross words as we're continuing to working on them during the course of the week. As we do all of that our goal of course is not mere trivial in nature in that we have the privilege of studying the word of God for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The recognition then that even what occurred so long ago can still be useful, beneficial, and encouraging for us helps us appreciate some of the lessons to be found in the book of 2 Samuel. We on our last occasion, which was two weeks ago admittedly, we had concluded chapter number 12 as we had looked at some of the features and facets of what had begun to occur in the reign of King David. Through the first ten chapters of this book, it would be difficult to transcribe a better and more monumental occurrence for him. It all seemed to be moving in his direction. He had ascended to the throne of Israel, and as such, God was by his side, and military victories were his, it seems, without number. He had conquered the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Syrians, as well as a host of others in chapters 5 through 8. And as we had seen those victories, it had, had not gone to David's head. If we may borrow some of those statements at least through the first ten chapters. He was humble. He had a degree of great concern for the welfare of his fellow man and had that ethical quality in which he punished on many occasions those who thought they, by way of envy or jealousy, had actually done him service. However, things took a turn for the worse in chapter 11. On the occasion of our last lesson, we came to recognize that David made the blunder, the sin, if you will, to engage in adultery, to engage in murder, to engage in conspiracy, and to engage in the forthright encouragement of drunkenness on the part of another. David, in fact, was directly confronted by Nathan on the account of what he had done, and Nathan, though telling a very touching story and compelling one at that, he concluded it by affirming to David, "'Thou art the man.'" Four words, but oh, what power they carry. David humbly recognized his sin, beseeched God in prayer. God forgave him of that sin, Psalm 51. However, might we never forget that on the same occasion and at the same moment, God speaking through Nathan said, The sore David shall never depart from thine house. What he had done was an open testimony of faithlessness and an open testimony in which even those who had opportunity to be enemies of God were led to appreciate the blasphemy that they were able to heap upon those that claimed to follow God. And thus, that brings us to chapter 13 tonight. And as we look at chapters 13 and 14, we also shall be able to see the continuance of those events. With perhaps the things we've asserted by way of introduction, let's turn, if you would, with me to chapter 13 and enter into a study of this nobly-oriented chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 13. As the chapter opens, we are immediately introduced somewhat more thoroughly to some of those children who we remember were mentioned on the part of David back in chapter 3. Remember that David had many wives and he had children by those wives and in this particular chapter 3 of those children will play a rather significant role and so we might well introduce ourselves to them at the outset. David's oldest son was named Amnon, and Amnon's mother, of course, was David's wife, and her name was Ahinoam. As we appreciate that oldest son, we might we remember also that David's third oldest child was also a boy. His name was Absalom, and Absalom's mother's name was Maacah. Interestingly enough, Maacah also bore David an, at least one other child, and that child was a girl whose name was Tamar. And so might we appreciate that Tamar and Absalom were full brother and sister, and they were both were half-brothers and sisters to, to Amnon, having, of course, the same father, but not the same mother. As the chapter opens, though, in 2 Samuel 13, we immediately are confronted with some of the feelings and desires on the part of Amnon, for, in fact, he was infatuated with Tamar. That infatuation was such that he desired to have her, but he appreciated that such would not naturally come about, for there were too many forces against it. Amazingly enough, he did, however, have a friend in whom apparently he put significant consideration and trust. That friend's name was Jonadab. Not perhaps any normal friend, for you see, Jonadab and Amnon were first cousins. They, of course, were such that their fathers were brothers. Jonadab's Jonadab's father was, in fact, David's, brother. David was the youngest son of Jesse. Jonadab's father was named Shimea and he was Jesse's third oldest son. So these two boys were in fact first cousins. Jonadab had what seemed to him to be a rather obvious solution to this. Amnon, why are you so fretful? Why are you so displeased? Why do you hang your head with low countenance? After all, you are the king's son. You pretend to be sick. And when David comes to see about you, You inquire him to, in fact, send Tamar, whereby she can prepare you meal, meal, and you can do then what your soul may desire from her. Amnon thought it was a good idea, so he pursued it. As he did so, he pretended to be sick. He, of course, wasn't actually sick. And when David heard of it, he came to check on his oldest son. Amnon faithfully decreed unto him that, Have Tamar, my sister, come, make cakes before my eyes that I may eat of her hand. David, of course, thinking no different of the matter, in fact, encouraged, even ordered Tamar to do so, she came and prepared a meal at Amnon's house. As she did so, he would not eat of it he inquired or asked that she bring it in to him, and then he ordered all the male servants, all in fact, to leave and to depart, leaving only he and Tamar. As she proceeded again to offer it to him, this time it became clear his intentions were more than merely the food that she had prepared for him. In fact, as I have attempted to put on the sheet, he pursued the scheme and in fact encouraged her to lie with him or in fact, sought for her to do that very thing. Might we notice some of the language that she uses to respond to this beseeching upon his part. In 2 Samuel 13, verse number 12, She answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. He was not of a mindset to be persuaded otherwise, and so being stronger than she, he forced her and raped her. On this occasion we see then this despicable deed done not only in Israel but even in the house of the king. The house of that man David who had claimed to be such a devoted servant unto the God in heaven. The aftermath of this event, however, would continue onward. In fact, after the deed was completed, after the thing was done... We now appreciate that the infatuation that he formerly had claimed for her and the desires that he had claimed toward her end and toward her consideration were completely reversed in his mind. now he hated her and in verses 14 and following drove her out from him, ordered her to leave and in fact bolted the door behind her. He wanted nothing more to do with her. He had gotten the thing that he desired. And no more was that sense of consideration or love upon his part to defend and move toward her direction what might have been considered. As the chapter unfolds, she went back to her house greatly sorrowed, defiled, and violated by what Amnon had done to her. And her brother Absalom learned of this event, learned of what in fact had taken place. So much so that beginning in verse 19 of 2 Samuel 13, Absalom proceeds to plot a scheme, if you will, a contrivance, whereby a degree of vengeance could be appreciated upon his behalf for what Amnon had done. Two full years elapsed. Isn't it interesting how long that degree of vengeance boiled and in fact held its degree in the mind of Absalom? Upon the completion of two full years, the time had arrived when the following plot came about. Absalom was shearing his sheep in that location or city of Baal, as it's stated for us in verse 23, Baal-Hatzor. And on that occasion, he had besought King David to come and enjoy in the celebration and the feasting that took place when the season of the year had come for the shearing of the sheep. We understand from history how important the sheep was to life for the ancient Hebrews and even the other nomadic peoples of that part of the world. It was thus a significant and community celebration when the time came to shear the sheep. Absalom invited King David, but the king refused to come, not because he was disinterested in it. He felt as though, perhaps for one reason or another, that others might better enjoy that celebration. Absalom thus quickly asked, May I invite all my brothers, your other sons, David, to come? David gave his permission Absalom invited them, and even Amnon chose to come. This was no doubt exactly what Absalom had desired for when Amnon came. The plot to, in fact, take his life could now be put into full execution. Amnon, in fact, on that occasion, was making himself merry with the others that were present. And Absalom gave the order that upon my command you take the life of Amnon for what he did to my sister Tamar. And when the ripe occasion occurred in verses 28 and 29, that's exactly what took place. Here we find then that the oldest son of David was put to death by by his own half-brother. Beginning in verse number 30, word rapidly reached back to the palace to where David was. And when David learned of it, he was beside himself thinking first that all of his son's lives had been taken. Jonadab, interestingly enough, was within sight and within the opportunity to share news otherwise. He shared with the king, it's not all the sons that are dead, it's only Amnon. We can immediately see in verses 34 and following, Absalom, for the taking of the life of Amnon, fled. For he understood in that old day under the law of Moses that there was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because he had taken Amnon's life, others could take his own by light underneath the blessed light of the law of Moses. Absalom fled. He fled from the palace. He fled from the family of David, if you will. Fled, in fact, in verses 37 and following, to a gentleman named Talmai whom we have encountered before. He was the king of Geshur. In fact, the very place that Absalom's mother was from. In essence, he fled to his grandfather's place. As he did so in verses 37 to 39, he remained there for some 3 years, and all the while David did not forget about Absalom. May we notice in fact verse 39 of 2nd Samuel 13, and the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon seeing he was dead. David, it seemed, had a very high degree of fondness for Absalom, though he had taken the life of his half-brother, and his soul longed after Absalom. That brings us to chapter 14. Joab, that faithful commander of the armed forces of David, came to appreciate the sadness that seemed to describe the countenance of David, and he contrived a plot whereby David could, in fact, be reconciled to his son. It was not a direct plot, to say the least, but nonetheless a rather ingenious one in which the interest and the word of David might be garnered toward that event, though the matter was not directly, immediately brought before him. Let's look briefly at chapter 14 as well. We notice the second word in the chapter is Joab. This was, in fact, his direct plan and what a successful one it turned out to be. Might we remember, David was now separated very vastly from his son, for Absalom was in exile from David at this time. Seeing though the sadness of David, here was Joab's plan. He secured the services of a wise woman of Tekoa, a little village nestled roughly ten miles south of Jerusalem, only about six miles south of Bethlehem. That's the very same place that later we'll learn that Amos, the prophet Amos, was from this place, his hometown. Interesting, isn't it, that as Tekoa was the very home place of this wise lady, Joab solicited her services and gave her a story to tell unto David. At the very outset of the story, might we remember that David, as the king of the empire, was the very individual before whom ultimately civil matters would come for their decision. Maybe there was one in the life of Solomon that rings ever more clearly in our ears. There was a time when two ladies were in conflict over a baby. Each one had had a child, but one of them had died. The other were the one who took, in fact, the child from the other, claimed it for her own. The actual mother could very well tell that the child was hers, but the matter was brought before Solomon. He, as the king, was the final matter of decision in civil affairs. This lady felt as though she had a matter to bring before, the, before King David. Her matter went something like this. She was a widow, she said. Her husband was dead. She had two boys, but they got into a fight, one with another, an altercation, if you will. And one of them took the life of the other one. That left only one son. And what's more, due again to that law, underneath the law of Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the other family members wanted the living son put to death because he had taken the life of his brother. She came before the king and said, If this were to happen, my husband's name will forever be gone from Israel, and they shall quench my coal a very beautiful and poetic way of stating that her namesake and the longevity of her family would forever be removed. David, upon hearing such, promised her that your son's life will not be taken. She wasn't immediately satisfied with that answer, but in fact pressed the matter even further. David ultimately was so adamant in defense of the life of her son, he said, not a hair of your son's head will fall. David was intent upon preserving the life of her living son and in so doing to preserve that which her family's, her husband's namesake would ultimately be. It's at this point the lady got what she needed from the very words of Joab. David had promised her the life of her son. Though he himself could rightly be put into exile for killing his brother, David promised security and protection for him. It's at this point the lady said, King, may I say one more thing? It's now that we've come into the words of verses 13 and 14. Listen to the power behind the statement that Joab had given her to say. Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. Yet doth He devise means that His banish be not expelled from Him. If you and I may paraphrase the thing that the wise woman of Tekoa had stated, recognizing that David had just promised safety and security for her son that she claimed had killed his brother, what is any different about David, your family, your son Absalom? killed his brother Amnon, your son Absalom is now in exile. Why don't you offer to him the same protection, the same security, and the same family reconciliation that you've promised my son? The king is faulty in this matter. You've preached one thing, but have not brought it to to play within your own family. And what's more, verse number 14, we all must needs die. You know, as water spilt on the ground... David, there's precious time a-wasting. You're longing after your son. He is in exile, no doubt himself, desiring to come home. Why don't you bring your son home? At this point, David knew very well that Joab was behind it. He did not punish the woman. He did not punish Joab. In fact, he was thankful that by this contrivance his heart had been touched, and he was in fact desirous and interested of bringing home his banished and exiled son. And so, beginning in verse 18, he gives orders to Joab, Go and fetch home Absalom. Bring my son home from Geshur. And so, beginning in verse number 21, Joab did that very thing. Going and beseeching, finding his son and bringing him home. With those ideas taking place in verses 23 and 24, he in fact did come home. We find note in verse 25 and 26 of the especial handsomeness that was descriptive of Absalom. It would seem he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. Perhaps many ladies brought themselves near to wish that he might select them as his wife. Might we note especially the character of his hair in verse 26 and that on the yearly basis, when it was polled, apparently, in that part of the world, we're told, an abundance and thick head of hair is known as that which is supposed to be a statement of one's manliness and one's capability of strong character of, of person. We're told in verse number 26 that when he weighed the hair of his head, it weighed some 200 shekels after the king's weight. The exact amount that that was in terms that you and I would appreciate today is a bit difficult it would seem on the order of at least a couple of pounds of hair. If that be the case, wasn't the man blessed with hair? Continuing on as the chapter races to its conclusion, we can see in verses 28 to 33, even once he returned, he did not immediately though see the face of his father David. Amazingly enough, in verse 28, some two years passed. By this time, even Absalom was somewhat frustrated because he had been unable and been invited again to meet face-to-face with the king. And so, in verses 29 to 32, he called Joab, requesting a meeting with the king. Joab would not respond to his solicitation, to his request. He burned Joab's field. That gained Joab's attention. And ultimately, in verse 33, the text that Brother Colonel read for us tonight, we can see that ultimately he did meet again with his father. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. He finally was welcomed back home. Five long years have elapsed since he had seen his son, since David had seen Absalom. But finally the reunion had taken place, but notice the sword had never departed from David's house. The difficulty that had brought his way, he'd now lost his oldest son. This difficulty that had arrived, we've now found that even one of them had raped his own half-sister. The sword, indeed, never departed from David's house. We've sketched the historical aspects of verses of chapters 13 and 14. Might we see what lessons might be in this for my benefit and for yours today, though, again, so many centuries removed from the events of these occasions? Several lessons to be drawn, and I've listed them in the following way. First of all, we began the lesson in the opening verses of chapter 13 in this way, that Amnon had an infatuation. The word love is used in the King James translation. Might we notice that word love as it occurs in other places often does not mean that type of love that we appreciate in other passages. Let's be very frank about it. Had Amnon loved her, would he have treated Tamar that way? Love wishes the best for those who are its objects. It would not have violently raped her in that fashion. It would not have defiled and humbled her in such a way as that. It was a disgraceful thing he had done, and Tamar told him so. It was folly, and such thing ought not be done in Israel. As we consider that, doesn't that lead us to see love does not behave that way? Love simply does not take advantage of and force into that kind of violation those who are its objects. In 1 Corinthians 13, in that dramatic chapter on love, Paul expanded upon that in many ways. We can only recollect perhaps a few of them as it relates so powerfully to refute this idea. Love seeketh not her own. Love does not behave selfishly. It looks upon those who are as its objects and is willing to sacrifice its own wishes for the benefit of them. Amnon wasn't willing to do that. In the absolute sense of the word, he did not love Tamar. Was he infatuated with her? Did her beauty astound him? Certainly it did. She apparently was a fair lady, the text says. Her beauty must have been ravishing. But that infatuation within him was not love. In fact, again, after the deed was completed, he hated her. He chased her away, wanted nothing more to do with her. We today should appreciate that still, love doesn't behave like what Amnon did. In the Song of Solomon, it's closing chapter, verse 6, love is stronger than death. Do we not learn in Ephesians 5... In that beautiful description about a man and his wife as it relates to Christ and his church, husbands love your wives. To what extent, Paul, has Christ loved the church and gave himself for it? Amnon wasn't willing to give anything up for her. We can ultimately claim thus, his approach toward her was not the kind of love that one would have desired, what it ought to have been. He treated her shamefully, disrespectfully, and in so doing, was not the kind of appreciation. Certainly for anyone, much less one's sister, it ought to have been. What about a second lesson? Can we not also appreciate that Jonadab was the one from whom Amnon took advice? Doesn't that lead us to appreciate that one ought to choose one's friends carefully? Jonadab didn't give him terribly good advice. He planted the seed in his mind that led to the shameful treatment of his own half-sister. Ought not we appreciate still today we should be selective into who we choose as our friends? They do influence us perhaps more than we're willing to admit. Perhaps in our better moments we're willing to say that they, in fact, influence us considerably. Quite often we are brought to their level. We come to see things their way. In 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three, that famous text from the very pen of Paul, he said, Evil communications corrupt good manners. But might we never forget the three little words that he began that statement with. Be not deceived. One of the easiest things that Satan ultimately and gradually will bring upon my life and yours is moment by moment, day by day, it doesn't happen overnight. Over a period of years, upon association with and companionship with, we start to see things their way. We believe things as they speak of it. And we soon find we're, we're in the same boat that they are. Many an individual up in, in hindsight has looked in the rearview mirrors of life and said, If only I'd done things differently back then. If I'd listened to better advice and counsel back then. But you see, by that time, often it's too late. The selection and choice of our friends might also recall for us the sixth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. May we be always cautious not to allow unbelievers to influence our life in any regard too significantly. For whether it be in matters religious or otherwise, their point of view in life is bound to be miles apart from ours. For if they are unbelievers, their life is not based upon the holy word of God. It's based upon something else, but it doesn't matter what that other thing is. It's not grounded upon that firm rock of which our Lord spake in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 24. In fact, did he not say there that that founded rock, that solid rock, is the one that that wise man's life was built upon? When the difficulties, winds, storms, and such of life blew upon it, the house stood because it was founded on a rock. We learn from that that even that advice that those unbelieving friends may give, if our life is properly founded, we'll have enough focus and perception to appreciate the foolishness of the advice and be wise enough not, not to follow it. Maybe that immediately leads to our third lesson, In addition to this character of the wise and proper selection of friends, what about the advice that we often need from time to time? Perhaps we beseech our parents or a good friend or an employer. Perhaps we beseech our husband or our wife. Who was it Amnon sought advice from? It was, in fact, a relative, his first cousin, Jonadab. But Jonadab's advice was terrible. It was awful advice, but yet he chose to follow it. Doesn't that help us appreciate as well, the fact that when we are of a position to receive advice from others, ultimately it's our decision as to whether or not to follow it. It may be foolish advice, awful advice. We should have enough consideration, enough distinction and discernment of mind to appreciate what advice is foolish and what advice is truly sound. Amnon made a foolish decision to follow such terrible advice. There were others, though, in the Bible of that same kind. When the young men, in fact, told Rehoboam, you increase their taxes, Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12 was of the disposition of saying, you thought my father was hard on you. I'm going to make it such that my leg is going to be in comparison in terms of taxes to what my father's little finger was. I'm going to load you down with taxes. Notice what that brought about. The kingdom was split. Never again was the kingdom of Israel to be as mighty and as powerful as it once was. Ten tribes revolted over such foolishness. The coffers of Jerusalem were full by that point. Second Chronicles 1 verse 15 tells us, Why did Rehoboam seek for so much more money? He had enough. Notice the foolish advice he chose to take. The older individuals, the older men of the kingdom told him, you go easier in terms of taxes and this people will follow you with loyalty and devotion. Rehoboam made the choice. He didn't choose wisely, unfortunately. He chose the foolish advice of those that were no better than he in terms of their experience and in terms of the things in life that they had known about. Proverbs 14.9, in fact, reminds us that we too should be wise in choosing that advice that would be better, suited in accord to that which is related in the Word of God. Perhaps in the fourth case, we do see on Absalom's part, any of us would have been greatly bothered and upset if one's sister were treated the way his sister was. Do we, however, reach a position of defending him for taking the life of his own brother? Revenge does not belong with us. We do not live under the days of the law of Moses. Admittedly, in that day and time, he did give that law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There were thus six cities of refuge set forth in Joshua 20 as well as Deuteronomy 19, cities to which an individual could flee if he had unpremeditatedly taken the life of another. We see Absalom, however, chose to take Amnon's life. You and I today can well be in positions in which others may openly mistreat us, doing things to us that cannot be defended in any way. It's not that they didn't know better. It's not that they could have done differently in the sense of unappreciation. They knew exactly what was going on. Yet, does that give us license to do to them just exactly what they've done to us? Does it give us license to kick them when they're down? Does it give us license to continue, in fact, to behave toward them in perhaps a meaner way than they did toward us? We notice this morning what the Savior did when he was so shamefully and woefully mistreated. Could we not appreciate, perhaps, his own statement, the golden text found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12? Did he there not say, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. That affirmation, that great ethic, if you will, cannot be set aside. It is the powerful way that Christ taught you and I to behave toward others. And in fact, Paul even taught us in Romans, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 19, that revenge is itself a sinful thing. He said, speaking for God, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. In that very case, Paul said, heap coals of fire on those that are your enemies. We are to be those who, in fact, pray for them. Those that despitefully use us and those that criticize and those that insult us, the Lord said in Matthew 5:44 and 5, thus our motif ought not be revenge. It ought to be pray for them. It ought to be strive to aid them to see the despiteful thing they've done so that they might learn the high road of glory and perhaps not behave in such ways any longer. In the fifth place, Can we not also appreciate the shamefulness of sin? Whereas Amnon, no doubt, looked forward to this occasion of interacting with Tamar in that fashion, what did he ultimately come to realize? It wasn't at all what he thought it'd be, apparently. For he hated her, chased her away, and wanted nothing more to do with her. Sin is a shameful thing. The shame seen in it is a shame perhaps stated no better than in the words of God through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3.25. When in the very language of that verse, and in the power of the shame it is seen, our people lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us. The shamefulness of sin so despicably seen, no matter how it may be portrayed. Some may claim it to be a noble thing, The TV may portray it as a glorious and inciting and appealing thing. May we never forget the appeal won't last but for a moment. Moses was wise enough not to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, Hebrews 7.25. The shamefulness of sin seen in Amnon's action and even in her own words to him. She said, this is folly. We noticed this morning in the case of another woman treated in a similar fashion, Dinah in Genesis 34. She told also the character on that occasion about the folly, or I should say her brothers did, the folly and foolishness of that kind of activity, and it ought not be done. It ought not be done today either. Maybe a sixth lesson in addition to these five. The understanding that a good friend should try to endorse and encourage peaceful behavior, not the, dis- the disgraceful and shameful behavior toward another. If you and I behave as a good friend toward those that are our friends, we ought not try to encourage them to do what is wrong and evil and vengeful. We should encourage them, in fact, to do that which is noble and high and good and honorable. How often does the Bible remind us? that as much as life in you live peaceably with all men, Romans twelve eighteen, Or those famous words of First Peter 3, in which we read, Seek peace and ensue it. That's a quotation from verse 11 of that same chapter. Peter said by inspiration, seek peace. That means chase after it. And that word ensue means to go after with a degree of earnestness and diligence. As you and I seek the character of peace. Aren't the words of that wise woman of Tekoa, doesn't that reverberate so wonderfully in our mind? Though Joab gave her the word, she said again in verse 14, God devised means that his banish be not expelled from him. There's no greater interesting perhaps thing to see that you and I were banished from him at one point. You and I were living in sin. We were apart from his love. We were apart from the commonwealth of blessing in Israel, stated in Ephesians 2 verse 12. We were his enemies, Romans 5 verse 8. We were apart from all the blessings of here and hereafter. But didn't God devise means that you and I could in fact no longer be banished but be drawn back to him? We saw the fulfillment of that means in the lesson this morning. That means was ultimately fulfilled at Calvary. The blood of His Son was shed that you and I could be reconciled to Him. The statement, in fact, seen in John chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1, just to name a few. As all of that is presented to us, isn't God good to us to make a way that you and I need not be banished from Him? It'd be awful to consider... The nature of being thrust into hell, being forever banished from His presence, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, never again able to enjoy not only Him, but anything good that emanates from Him. Perhaps another lesson. Doing evil is not the way to bring about good. Doing evil is not the way to bring about good. Maybe there is a sense in which we can see that such was perhaps imagined, even in this case of John Jonadab, Amnon, and Tamar. Doing evil is not the way to bring about good. Have you ever heard someone try to say that the end justifies the means? As long as the end, whatever it occurs at the end of the journey, can be somewhat nobly described as good, then whatever it takes to get there is justified and approved. Friend, that's false. Nowhere in all the book of God does it teach us that one has been given the license to do evil just as long as what ultimately comes about can be means or considered as good. Nowhere does God's book teach that. The end does not justify the means. We should, in fact, be those that desire goodness always, pursuing the noble and high road that leads to the forbearance of not only those that are our brothers and sisters, but the appreciation that we should ever strive to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we have been called. Ephesians 4, verse number 1. To say all that, perhaps, is to lead us to see yet again the tragic consequences of sin. We had seen it in the life of David. Now we're seeing it in the life of his sons. The sinful thing that Amnon had done led to ultimately the revenge revenge taken by Absalom toward him. We've seen murder now in the royal family. We will see many more things before our study is done. We can see the tragic consequences. God forgave David of what he had done. Did that remove all the consequences? Did it take away the punishment that would necessarily be in accordance to what he had wrought, the folly? It did not for David, and it does not for us. No wonder, then, we should be sober-minded, as so often we're taught in the New Testament, to think with clear logic and to think with analytical skills, Before I do this, will it bring reproach on my name, my family's name, my church family's occurrence? If so, it ought not be done. For there may be many sorrowful and regretful years spent thereafter wishing that different things had taken place. In Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Later in James chapter 1, do we not read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away with his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The natural consequence of sin is death. We've noted earlier that it's not pretty. Its consequences are terrible. The consequences are very demanding indeed. One other text from the Old Testament that shines a powerful light on that idea from Second Chronicles 36, the closing chapter to that book. God there said... Israel, Judah, these are the consequences of your sin. Seventy years of Babylonian captivity. You'll be taken away from the land you love and from the temple you've built. You'll be taken away from the ground I promised to Abraham and his seed, but you've broken the promise. You've broken the covenant. Do we not there see the powerful character consequences of sin? Dramatic indeed, aren't they? Those sets of lessons perhaps lead us to draw our study to a conclusion tonight. Maybe we can summarize it so very quickly in words like this. Our study in 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14 have been beneficial. Though at times we see the very clear character of what was done, not that the Bible endorses what Amnon did. It only tells the truth of that thing that Amnon chose to do. You and I should learn the lesson to not live like that not to make decisions that willfully violate and hurt those whom we cherish and love, or even anyone else. We are to love even our enemies, Matthew 5:44. We've looked at a host of lessons. They've all helped us see that the difficulties in David's house may be such that in wisdom we can so conduct our lives and our households that we won't have these kinds of problems. We should, of course, begin a journey like that by being a Christian. There is no better way to journey through this life and there's no better way at all to enter the next life with any degree of happiness. Are you a member of the blood-bought body of Christ? It is the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. It is that organization purchased with the blood of Christ, Acts 20.28. And it is that very one in 1 Corinthians 15.24 that will be handed to the Father on the day of judgment. If you aren't a member of that body and you've reached the age of accountability, knowing wrong from right, and that Christ died for you, and what the steps of salvation include, if you reject it tonight, and if you die, there's no hope for you to be saved. Those aren't meant to be words that are purposely chosen to insult. They're words, hopefully, that will cause you to think. The urgency of the hour is extreme. No one's promised tomorrow. If you need to respond tonight, a hymn of invitation has been selected. If we could be of assistance to take your confession, having, of course, already been a person who has believed and repented, we'd be honored to aid you in that confession in Acts 8:37, and to aid you in being buried in water, baptized for the remission of your sins. With those sins being remitted, you will be as clean and pure as snow, as the wool of a beautifully clean lamb, Isaiah 1, verses 15 to 17. If we could assist you to become like that tonight, we'd be honored to help you. We'd be overjoyed to help you. If you have become a Christian but haven't been faithful, you have perhaps acted in disgraceful ways. Others know about that. Come back to your first love. This hymn of encouragement is an opportune and convenient time, and if we could be of assistance, please let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.